Hello again, everyone out there, and welcome to episode two of the Music Answers podcast. I'm your host, Derek Fawcett. And I'm your producer, Matt Rose. And wow, I don't know about you, Matt, but I'm still reeling a little bit from our amazing conversation about copyright in episode one with outside counsel to Songwriters Guild of America and advisor to Music Creators North America, Charlie Sanders. Uh, just so thoughtful and well-spoken on a topic that can be so thorny, a totally, sadly, justifiable amount of doom and gloom, but hopeful as well. Ah, just great. Uh, If you haven't listened to that yet, be sure to check it out. Allow me to remind our listeners to send your questions to us at musicanswers.org or at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and we'll ask our guests your questions and even give you a shout-out, so send them along. We live in a musical world at the moment that is dominated by streaming. Most listeners of recorded music stream that music, and the revenue generated from the streaming of those recordings, though controversially small, has become the largest source of revenue from recordings. According to Statista.com, in 2020, streaming revenues reached $13.4 billion U.S. billion worldwide, the highest ever recorded and more than four times the figure given for 2015, when music streaming revenue amounted to $2.8 billion. Streaming revenues now account for over 62% of total global recorded music revenue. Having covered copyright in episode one, which is kind of the reason we have a music industry at all, we thought it'd be smart for our second episode to speak with some experts on the mechanisms that generate all of these streaming royalties. Mechanical and compulsory licenses. Our guests today work for SongTrust, a global music publishing administrator, Mandy Aubrey and Kyle Feedy. Welcome to the Music Answers podcast. Hi. Glad to be here. Thanks. (laughs) And uh, we've got Mandy coming in from Leiden in the Netherlands, and we've got Kyle coming in from Brooklyn. So it is truly a global presentation this morning. Uh, So uh, I think it makes sense, and I bet that not all of our listeners know exactly what Song Trust is. So maybe if you could give us just a little background on, on the, the company for which you work. Yeah, sure. Um, SongTrust is now, I think, the, globe, the biggest global administrator of music publishing royalties. Um, the service is available for anyone and everyone, um, no matter uh, what their royalty expectation is. And, you know, in the same way that um, the recording side has become democratized and pretty much anyone can get their songs uh, available for streaming on the recording side. That's what SongTrust has done on the um, composition side. So we're talking about the songwriters and producers or anyone who has a share of the composition. They can become a SongTrust client and have access to their global royalties. Do you want to elaborate at all, Kyle? Um, I think that that was a pretty good overview. But yeah, it's um, it was meant to be accessible. And that's exactly what we've done You know, prior to that. Uh, the music publishing industry was certainly geared towards, say, the top 10%, um, you know, in order to collect, especially on a global scale. Um, there's a lot of hoops and barriers, mostly being signed, you know, the concept of being signed. Um, and Song Trust was built to remove that barrier. And, um, that's a, you know, been quite successful in that. That's amazing. And what, what to, talking a little bit more about that, what... What are song trusts? Uh, what's their origin story? I mean, like, you know, I suspect most people going into music business don't say, oh, let's go find the musicians that are generating less revenue and help them, you know? <laughs> like, so <laughs> what, what brought 
that to the forefront for you know, for the founder? I mean, I guess you end up speaking for the founders a little bit here, but like well, how? Well, I think we know the answer. I think there is a story, Carl. You could probably correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think there is a story that that Justin, um, you know, the owner of the company, he he just kept having people come to him and say, oh, you know, what about this co-writer's chair that needs collecting, and what about that co-writer's chair, and there just wasn't anywhere you know, for these people to go to, to have um, the, their share of the copyrights collected. And and then, you know, he being just in the way he is, and he's always, you know, wants to help everyone is thinking there must be so many people. And as Kyle was saying, you know, only the 10% of, of people who write or wrote in those days had access to this uh, lucrative um, revenue stream on the royalty side. So that's sort of where it came from. It's like that there are so many people who are not being taken care of. And even in the four years since I been at Songtrust, I've seen it grow from a predominantly US um, company in terms of our client base as well to completely global in terms of where our client base is as well. So it's not just making it available for, uh, to anyone and everyone in America or North America. It's it's making our service available to anyone and everyone, especially in places where no uh, copyright infrastructure has existed really um, right. until now. You know, I think that story is right. I think that's how I heard it. Um, yeah, that would be correct. Um, and, and more specifically, I think it was a lot of Justin Klifowitz, who was the original CEO of Downtown Music Publishing, who was our parent company. Um, it was a lot of his friends that didn't quite fit the mold of signing to mm -hmm. Downtown, which was, you know, geared towards a different type of, of writer. But yeah, it was, it was pretty much that story and a lot of his friends and he just saw an opportunity um, and also an opportunity to to put in more tech forward practices and, you know, try a different approach to publishing in general. So let that be a note to our listeners out there, the power of guilting your friends to help you, <laughs> uh, very, you know, it can, it can literally change the world, uh, being facetious, of course. Uh, so speaking of song trust in, uh, a global sense, um, you've got this mission where you're trying to link up the world's PROs, as Mandy was was alluding to, how why are you trying to do that, and how is it going? Well, you know, my remit is for collections in the EMEA and APAC territories, so that's Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and Asia Pacific. Um, and in a lot of those countries around the world, there doesn't yet exist a fully operational performing rights organization or collective management organization. But these these um, countries have an, a, a huge absorption of their music also internationally. So whereas still within their own country, it may not be so simple in some places to collect the royalties uh, generated domestically, the international uh, royalties are still there to be collected by these people in these countries. And the other um, key um, reason behind uh, the rationale of how we structured the business is um, the idea that, yes, you know, you can use one, one PRO, CMO to collect your royalties domestically, but it is questionable how successful one income pay source can be for collecting from multiple global pay sources, right? Because they rely on what's called reciprocal deals. And Carl knows all about this because he's been very um, influential in helping Sontrust to build our um, international infrastructure. So what we do is rather than saying, okay, we're, you know, we're with the German CMO, right? 
uh, we're just going to let the German CMO collect global royalties from America and France and the Netherlands and Belgium and Australia and so on and so forth. And you could even whittle it down further to digital royalties. Um, we're, we're going to go, at, we, we want to speed up the time, efficiency and directness of the royalty flow on the publishing side from the usage to the, the rights holder. And doing so, we have um, established over 60 direct memberships of um, global PROs, CMOs, with who are the pay sources from whom we can collect the royalties. So we're registering the songs, we're depositing the works directly into those pay sources so they can report directly back to us without a hop, skip, jump and a bit of money off here and a bit of this and talking to someone here and another six months delay. We're going directly from, from A to Z, I suppose, and back. Um, but also on digital royalties, we are we have found a way to collect directly from digital uh, pay sources who pay us even more frequently than the timelines that the uh, typical PRO or CMO will pay us. So we're hoping that, um, I mean, it's proven that, that this is a very good way to collect global, globally efficiently without relying on the reciprocal deals and perhaps a loss of information and, and a lack of priority because the domestic territory has always been the, the priority for the royalties coming from um, and generated in their own territory. And they often don't even have the, um, the, the manpower to have a huge international team focusing on the international collections. So, you know, that's why we, we've done it this way. But perhaps, Carl, you have um, more you can elaborate on because I said you were directly involved uh, and have seen Song Trust grow our global pay sources quite extensively over the last decade, but, but particularly in the last five years. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in a simplified approach, um, the way that we saw it was um, through the reciprocal re relationship, there is also kind of another reliant party that publishers often turn to, and that was sub-publishers. So the idea of using a publisher in a local country, um, you know, so a U.S. publisher would, you know, sign an agreement with a publisher in another country and, and they would work with the local societies and, um, you know, get that local income to us. And it was just an additional third party, you know, so the, the idea of just making it more efficient, um, you know, we took the approach of, of going direct, which can be a bit time consuming and be a bit um, expensive. Uh, so it's why a lot of companies just choose to partner. Um, but th what you end up doing is having many, many partners who all work on different schedules, who, you know, give you different data back. And we thought, you know, why not do this ourselves, take the time, spend the money, um, and and be able to control our own destiny, if you will. Um, and that was the approach. And, you know, there's been some bumps along the way, of course, and uh, SongFest is kind of a little over 10 years now. Um, but our network has grown to parallel that of most of the majors um, and, and has been quite successful in doing that. We have offices now in a couple of different parts of the world. And it's it's allowed us to, to as Mandy was saying, you know, just be truly direct and collect truly direct and cut some of the timelines down in publishing, which can get to be very long. You know, sometimes it would take a year plus to collect a royalty type from certain countries. And, 
And we've tried to shorten that the best we can. And, and that's really been the, the most simple approach, I guess, that we've yeah. been looking for. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just about the speed of time that it takes for royalties to reach, because um, as, as many of the listeners will know, when they've had a query, for example, they know that their song has been played on French radio, as an example, but they only have the American PRO to go to to try to find out what's happened to those royalties from their what? you know, full-time A rotation on the French national radio, then it can take a long time to get an answer uh, about that from, you know, a, an American team trying to then query it with the French society, again, amidst their own priorities and getting back. So, you know, whereas we as, as a, a very large um, administrator have a lot of clout, you know, with the French society, the German society and all the others I told you about. So when there's a question like that, um, as long as a song has been successfully acknowledged uh, through our registrations with that society, then we can put in a request and we can go to our direct representative at the French society and say, uh, bonjour, can you please tell me what's <laughs> happened to the royalties for, for this particular usage? And, and, you know, that's the thing that frustrates a lot of creators. It's that lack of understanding of what well, what happened to that money do I have to just think well it might come it might not they just need closure and and it depends on the personality of the creator but I've met many creators and these things keep them up at night when they know that they had a big hit in France but they you know they they, they think well I never got any money from it but the song was registered whereas for example in other countries like Russia for example you can have the biggest you know hit your song could be used in a film for example but but we have the expertise to say yes but there is not so much money to be expected perhaps from uh, that, uh, that sort of royalty stream in Russia or, or from a concert that you're playing in China, for example. So, you know, don't rely on the royalties on the back end, get, get a good fee for appearing because you're not going to get much from us. And that's the realism. So I think that's what we also try to do. We have so many people who work at Song Trust, and I think the, the expertise within our company has, has um, become greater and greater over the last decade. So we have experts who can just help people to get to the bottom of how can we do this the most successfully, but the most um, honestly, you know, that we're not leading people down the garden path, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the I should mention we we mentioned in a very passing way the concept of PROs, and we're actually going to be covering PROs in more depth in our next episode with ASCAP's Doug Wood. So if you're saying, hey, they said PROs, what's a PRO? We'll let you know in our next episode. Um, this it seems like y'all are like almost Robin Hoods out there, <laughs> you know, that it's like you're finding this this genuine need from songwriters and filling it uh, in such a beautiful and kind of almost like so logical, like, man, why why hasn't this been done before? With the exception of the fact that it's just not, hasn't been a, a hugely revenue generating venture. Um, I would imagine that people would have to have a pretty interesting, you know, just kind of way that they see the world in order to choose to make that uh, your profession. Can you talk to us a little bit about your professional past. How did you get here as opposed to seeking out work at some major revenue-generating music industry company? Huh. Carl, you go first this time. <laughs> uh, great, yeah. I, um, I would say, I, I, generally speaking, I did start my career, um, albeit in publishing, um, working for some of the majors. Um, you know, I did, I did work for Sony ATV and at the time I worked for EMI Music Publishing, which was eventually bought by Sony. Um, I worked for BMG. So I made my rounds uh, with, with the large publishers and, and learned a lot. And um, what I saw was kind of 
two things. One, the, you know, how unaccessible or inaccessible um, publishing was, um, and also how broken uh, the publishing industry was. You know, it, it was designed for the top earners, um, and, and it was very, very old school. You know, as someone coming into, you know, any career, just trying to find ways to be like, how can I make an impact? Um, and that was what drew me to Song Trust as being this new kind of approach. Um, you know, so I had originally started in mechanical licensing, uh, which we'll probably get to, and, and I did sync licensing um, as well for TV and film. Um, but the copyright side of things was really interesting to me because just the transfer of data in the systems in place and the way that all of these companies work together just seems like there was so much room for improvement. Um, and that was ultimately just very exciting for me. Um, you know, getting to the bottom of it, finding new ways to work, thinking outside the box. Uh, and SongTrust kind of allowed me to do that. When I started at SongTrust, the company was maybe eight or nine people. Uh, it was very small. Wow. Um, and, and it was still, it was only a couple years old at that point. And, you know, we weren't really sure at the long-term success. Um, so I, I came in and started as managing the, the operations of which at that time was, was kind of everything. It was, it was registering songs, it was royalties, it was client services, um, client acquisition, you know, marketing, it was, it was everything. Um, and, and we had a small team and a couple of developers and, you know, we were going to go down this path of, of, you know, trying to insert some technology and efficiency into this industry. And, um, you know, along the way, joined a lot of working groups and, you know, we're a part of a lot of industry um, talking points of just how can this improve. Um, so it's it's kept me in the industry as well because it's just there's very rarely do you get to be a part of industry that has such a long ways to go, and that's how I've have always felt about um, publishing, and and it still has a ways to go, um, which is why I'm still hooked, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that's mm-hmm. the the path, and, and it's what's kept me going. So. Do you do you hear our listeners cheering right now, Kyle? Because I think <laughs> <Yeah>. they are. <laughs> so that was so great. How about you, Mandy? Um, so I'm believe it or not, I've been in the music industry for 25 years already. I don't know where the time's gone. <laughs> um, but you know, the whole time I've always worked internationally. So actually, I've never been responsible for my own territory that I've lived in. So um, always working for people around the world. So my first job in in the music industry was at Mercury UK International, which was still at that time part of Polygram, and that was in London. And in those days, I used to have to get Elton John sales figures for Candle in the Wind, or or um, you know Dire Straits Mark Knopfler sales figures, and try to send faxes to Bulgaria that were phone faxes. So that's sort of where I started from. Um, but I loved it. But I said so that was my only um, that's the only time I've ever worked for a major in the business. That was for, for two years. And then I moved to the Netherlands in 98. And then I worked at Roadrunner Records. So on the master side in heavy metal during the time of, say, you know, Typo Negative, Slipknot, Nickelback and all those bands working in promotions and product management by the end. And I loved that. But that taught me a lot about obviously the recording side and the composition side are so inextricably linked. So I feel that I was gifted that understanding of, you know, what's happening on the recording side and how it can affect the, the, the you know, the royalties later on the on the publishing side. So I did that for, for 10 years, nine, 10 years. And then I ended up at um, 
a music publishing administrator called Vintage House, which sold its music division to Cobalt in 2017. But during that time, uh, the time when, you know, in a parallel universe, Kyle was making his way towards this brand new idea, this new venture called Song Trust, Downtown was our client at um, at Vintage. So I used to look after the Downtown account and um, Downtown had a couple of direct affiliations. And for the rest of the world, uh, we took care of the registrations of their songs globally. So that's how I got to know the group and, and everything. So when... Um, Luckily, when uh, the, the music division of, of uh, Vintage was being sold to Cobalt, Justin, who we mentioned before, he said to, to someone else, find out what Mand is doing. And that thankfully brought me to Song Trust. And, uh, you know, I remember that there had been talks about Song Trust even when I was at Vintage. But to see even now, to, to look back at like remembering these echoes about this, you know, pay, pay $100, anyone can sign up idea to think about where we are now. And in fact, just where we've come from when I started four years ago in terms of growth and global reach and accessibility and the marketing and everything, it's quite amazing. So, you know, in terms in the music industry, you can't always just choose where you're going to be. It, it sort of finds you and you end up um, where you end up. And um, But I would say what Kyle and I have in common, and perhaps that's what's kept us so interested and so committed to the people we work for, is our understanding of various areas of the industry. Having started in our uh, respective careers at companies that were at the time very small and where one had to do everything. So you might have been a client manager, but you had to do the copyright inquiries and the royalty inquiries and talk to the societies and, and know about the length of time it takes to get answers and tactfulness with both external and internal clients, you know. Um, I think that's what's made us um, successful at, at what we've done and, and never really regretting that we took this route. And, and on the international side and what you mentioned before about the Robin Hood thing, I mean, I regularly say I feel that what I do Yes, it, of course, it's a business. Song Trust is a business, but I really do feel that we're helping people and making a difference to their lives, especially in many of the countries um, that I'm working with. Um, but my colleagues who work in their various genres and, and areas, they they realize and see it too. Um, you know that that it, it is it is amazing to be able to help people who um, have until now ignored due to a lack of understanding this this uh, royalty income source. You know. So there you go. I am passionate. <laughs> yeah, what that's I do. Great. You both are so passionate. It's wonderful. Um, and speaking of helping people, this is kind of as as you know, Mandy, when we talked about this, that this is part of our mission. And we suspect that a lot of our listeners are maybe somewhat knowledgeable, but maybe not as knowledgeable as they want to be about the kind of work that they do that involves the work that you do. So wondered if you could go into the idea just from, you know, from the ground up, like what is a license? What are the types of licenses and royalties in music? And just kind of give us, you know, give us the foundation. Well, I'm going to do the short version. Then I'm going to revert to Carl, who has much more of the technical expertise because outside of America, you know, someone who wants to have their royalties collected doesn't need to know all that necessarily, because if they if they use an administrator like SongTrust, the only thing they really need to do is make sure that they are an affiliated writer to what we said, a PRO or a CMO. So that's a performing rights organization and let us do the job for them. So I just want to make it clear that one doesn't have to be an expert at all these things to have access to this income stream. But if we talk about someone, let's say uh, I know a lot of your audiences in a 
America. Kyle, maybe you can explain um, simply, you know, what was being asked there <laughs> to yeah. answer that one. Yeah, I think, you know, breaking it down and it can get to be a bit overwhelming. So, you know, the main ones, a license ultimately in, you know, the simplest terms is, is a grant of permission, right? It's, it's uh, depending on what you're focused on necessarily, um, you know, you're granting a, a another party permission, usually to, to use your work in some way. Um, you know, so the main types of licenses, the ones that you'll come across most generally um, are mechanical licenses, which often refer to a reproduction of a work, uh, your synchronization licenses, which are often, you know, your music being used amongst um, audiovisuals, um, or sorry, visuals. Um, public performance, uh, this is, you know, applied to usually a broadcast of your work. So uh, this is most commonly what uh, people in the U.S. will run into when discussing, you know, their music with maybe a rep from ASCAP and, and BFMI. You know, this could be radio or uh, a jukebox, things, things of that nature. Um, print rights, which a little more old school, it's kind of sheet music and, and things of that nature. It's kind of, you know, origin story, if you will. Um, and uh, theatrical use, which anyone that loves theater, uh, of course, is music used in, on the stage. Um, and master licensing, which is the actual, you know, the physical recording. And that is usually when you start discussing with your label and distribution and, you know, people using um, CD Baby and DistroKid and in services such as that. And that's where that that comes in, where you're earning, you know, royalties off of sales. Um, you know, those are your your probably your main six and, and they can kind of cover a lot. Now in, in the new age, you're kind of seeing more um, digital licensing and, and micro sync licensing, but they even those still stem from from those original kind of main license types. Okay. Okay. And and so guide us through the journey of a song from the beginning to the end in terms of mechanical, for example. So uh, Matt and I write a song, we put it out. What is the flow of the mechanical royalty? Um, yeah, so if I could, if I'll even maybe take a few steps before that, if it's all right. I think, yeah, um, yeah. Because Matt uh, and I haven't actually written the song yet anyway, so please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, I think the journey is is so interesting because it, it's done differently by everyone. And there's plenty of reasons for that. Um, but if it was to be, if there was a perfect world, um, you know, and, and there's actually a lot of companies that are trying to, to accomplish this right now, um, would be to kind of build an actual true dedicated workflow um, to, this, to this journey of, of writing a song, releasing song, licensing song and so forth. Um, you know, so if you both write song uh i'd say the first thing you should do before you leave the studio or end your collaboration zoom call or whatever it might be these days um is to decide who owns what uh you know it's it's insane at how often this is missed and i, and I understand why the creative process is what the creative process is um but knowing what you own what split of the publishing is yours who contributed to the the recording and, and all of that is, is paramount to what comes next, uh, because it, it ultimately could be the reason why money stops flowing um, when you don't know the answers to these. And it can, it can get to be quite ugly, unfortunately. So uh, in the best way, someone writes the lyrics, someone writes the music, you split it 50-50, uh, 
it's a good start. Um, you, you go, you find someone that is going to distribute your music, whether that is a label or, um, you know, one of these services that have, um, made it much more accessible. Um, you release your music and if you do it yourself, um, it can be a bit simpler. You can sometimes the, the mechanical part of it is just that it, it doesn't really exist because you're releasing it. You're not going to pay yourself. Um, but if a label were to do it, uh, you know, they're going to ask you what your splits are. They're going to do a mechanical license. Um, you're going to basically grant them permission to reproduce your music and, and distribute it. And, you know, based on um, where you're releasing it. So in North America, the, the statutory rate for a mechanical license is 9.1 uh, cents per song. Um, so, you know, they... You, do that you grant permission they're doing um you know you're being prorated that and you're getting half of that for every time um it is so sold and distributed um so so the mechanical license you know is is done uh your your master license is done based on whoever's distributing it so you're you're entitled to sales and you're entitled to the publishing side you know on a physical release or a digital download release um you know that that covers you it's out in the world. And then if once you start doing that outside of the U.S., um, as Mandy was alluding to, um, you know, a lot of that work is actually handled by the CMOs. In, in the U.S., it is more of a direct relationship situation, although you can use services like Harry Fox in music reports uh, to do these licensing um, for you. Um, and then you kind of, you know, you wait for your next opportunity, right? You know, maybe it is sync or maybe there's another license or maybe you re-record your song. Um, or do remixes and, you know, then all of those other things come in and, and you're starting to do, do that. But in the simplest form, it's, you want to, um, you know, know who owns it, work with the people releasing your music. If it is a third party, make sure there's a mechanical license in place, um, you know, and prepare to collect on any royalties, hopefully from a successful hit. And a big part in the, in the United States, I know with the mechanical royalties at a minimum, is in the mechanical licenses is covers. That's a that's a big place where that occurs. And just to touch on that a little bit, like, what's the process for a cover? You know, a lot of people, even if you're, you know, listening to this and you're a music creator and you create music, but you want to cover one song in your album, what's that like? Um, yeah. So you know, this is some, especially in this day and age, right? Um, you know, with YouTube and all of these things, the idea covers are are massive. They've launched people's careers in their own in their own ways um but that's what's so great about being a songwriter um is that there's so many opportunities for you to monetize um the work that you've done whereas sometimes just being the artist maybe not contributing to the composition necessarily um might not be is have as much potential um so in terms of covers you know if you were to release a cover of someone else's work um you would need to to work with you know, who the copyright owners and potentially the administrators of that work um, to make sure you have a mechanical license in place to pay, um, you know, the percentage um, of sales outside of the U.S. or the statutory rate, um, depending on how many units of that cover you might sell. Digitally, that gets a little more complex because there's, you know, YouTube and things that's all kind of almost baked in nowadays. But, um, you know, there is. Um, you know, whether you're the one covering or someone's covering your material, there is a mechanical license for that. And if you agree, um, there's oftentimes not even a permission with, um, 
assigned to it as long as you agree to pay the full rate um, and you're not changing the work in any meaningful way. You're just doing a straight cover. Um, that starts to allude to some of the compulsory license that I think will, you know, kind of also touch on is, is just that as long as you agree to pay the full rate, um, there's very little anyone could do to stop you from covering a song um, in releasing it and in monetizing it from the master side. Um, whereas the original um, songwriters still earn their cut. Um, you know, and when you find songs that have been covered hundreds and thousands of times, you know, the songwriter is, is kind of just sitting back and probably having a good day. So, <laughs> so long as they have access <laughs> yes, to their yeah, royalties. Yes, and and exactly. that was just all I wanted to add, just that, you know, people often forget that, um, let's say your DIY person who, who has released uh, via a distributor directly, um, they just need to be aware that if they are only with a performing rights organization, they are not going to have accessibility to um, the mechanical element of the streams of their song. So that so every stream has both a performance and a mechanical uh, royalty element to it. So that's very important for people in the journey to make sure um, I would say the majority of people are, you know, releasing themselves. They're not doing it through a label. So they need to make sure that they have access to the mechanicals as well, because that is, in many ways, I think it's a lion's share of, of some of the royalties that are collectible uh, for people. So so obviously, you know, there are two choices. You can try to do it yourself and join uh, all the mechanical societies. I think in America, you'd have to be with three different organizations to have all your different mechanicals. Um, so that's already quite a tall order nowadays. Um, or you could go with a, a company like SongTrust who can help you access that. Um, or, uh, you know, in um, continental Europe in particular, with this concept of a CMO, a collective management organization, they tend to collect both the, the mechanicals and the performance um, that's available, albeit within the limitations of them being, you know, their global reach, but at least, you know, you have some access. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kyle was starting to go into one of our next questions, uh, so figure we may as well go there. Uh, can you tell us briefly what a compulsory license is and why that matters, especially to songwriters? Um, yeah, so compulsory uh, license is especially, um, has long especially been relevant in the U.S. as well, um, where it's it's kind of in, it's an exception to copyright law in many ways and in the grants permission, as long as you're following, you know, kind of the rules, if you will, um, to use music in certain ways. And it's very, um, relevant in, um, you know, rebroadcasting it's in public broadcasting, um, you know, and the digital, I think it's most commonly referred to and probably most knowledgeable for a lot of, uh, listeners um, in the digital space. Um, compulsory licenses was very is very much used in the U.S. for when uh, Spotify and all of that came. You know, if you ever worked with any of the mechanical societies, um, they would issue just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of compulsory licenses um, needed to license your music so that they could have that music on their services. Um, but it was them agreeing to pay what was owed to them. Um, of course, the digital um, services weren't paying 9.1 cents a stream, um, but uh, that was reserved for, for traditional mechanical and, and physical and downloadable uses. Um, but yes, compulsory kind of just is, is another grant of permission um, to re-record and release um, as long as they're paying what is rightfully due. 
Um, that has since started to change in the U.S. with, you know, the introduction of BMLC and and how um, you know copyright law has started to change in the U.S. Um, you know, granting bulk licenses and, and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, that landscape is is changing. But um, you know, it's important to know that using the cover as an example. Um, that you can issue a compulsory license, agree to pay the full stat rate, um, and kind of um, be covered in, in any of your uses, as long as you're not changing anything um, all that much. And on the songwriter end, like if somebody's covering one of my songs, a lot of times you don't even necessarily know that somebody's going to do it because of the compulsory license. It's not like they have to ask you to do it. Correct. Yeah, it's... Um, Especially if they're using, um, uh, you know, if as a writer you're using a publisher or something, a lot of times those licenses will be done um, at a service level like Harry Fox or, or Music Reports um, between your your admin and, uh, you know, the, the person um, submitting that license. Um, so, so, yeah, it's... I've worked with creators that have viewed that in different lights over the years. Um, there are some that don't believe that they should have that right kind of taken away to approve things. And, and there are some exceptions, um, especially in, in, in certain types of, of licenses where it's, um, but yeah, just a straight re-release compulsory license. It does. It's just kind of, it's a, it's a very accessible grant uh, of permission. So, um, and depending on any feel, but at the end of the day, it is, um, it's a revenue source. And I think a lot of creators hopefully view it that way and getting their, the opportunity for their song to be covered can open a lot of doors, especially, um, if you are the, you know, original writer of that song. It sounds like the compulsory license is, is similar to the blanket license concept for, for, for the use of works internationally, Carl. You know, like, let's say um, the BBC in England wants to use um, someone's song for, I don't know, EastEnders or something. We don't have to, in England, ask for permission um, to use the songs in the same way that I think it, it occurs in America. It just happens. So, so, you know, if you write a song, the best thing you can do to ensure that you're remunerated for any use of your work that you don't you know, blatantly hear of um, is to make sure it's registered in as many uh, of the global pay sources as possible. So, so that when there is a match between the use of that work and it came through the, say, your compulsory license or the blanket license, they, the money will get to you for the royalties um, because it's, it, I suppose it's pretty much impossible to know every use of, of one's work nowadays. Yeah, the blanket license is just basically would be us saying, if your song is used on Spotify, we have a license now with Spotify on your behalf. Um, so yeah. it, it is, it is, it's simplifying the process, the compulsory license process at the scale that it became within digital was just unruly. Um, so in, in many ways, um, it's just a, a blanket license as a simplification. And that's the micro sync at YouTube as well that you mentioned, you know, that, that, that can't, that can't be approved all the uses on YouTube either. Right. Right. Yeah. And we're, we're going to do, just for our listeners, we're going to be doing a whole episode on how YouTube works with all of this stuff because it's a whole different animal. Yes, um, you'd think that they would be the same because they use the same internet, and yet. Uh, so um, could you talk to us a little bit about the concept of mechanical royalty, royalties and how they touch virtually all 
corners of music composition, physical, digital, et cetera, and like, and how, you know, they have their own unique relationship with each. And I'd love to have you talk about that a little bit. Um, yes. You know, mechanical, in many ways, it's just best to think, and mechanical is often, especially nowadays with digital, is, is often just is half of, of your publishing um, sources, you know, um, income sources. And a lot of times it, it is very relevant. And oddly, it's, it's, as I think Mandy was alluding to this, is one that is often forgotten about. Um, as far as collecting on it, because you, you, as a writer, you affiliate with your PRO, um, especially in the U.S. And, and we've had so many clients not even know that the mechanical part was was missing. Um, you know, so the mechanical royalty, you know, as far as music is is really connected um, historically, like all the way back. It it started as kind of a, what the the um, uh, the piano roll concept, uh, you know, the, right. that used to play right. in uh, 1907. Right? <laughs> sure. the, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so that, you know, it's where that's how it originated. That's how it started. And, and it, as it, you know, we found ways to release music through different mediums, you know, vinyl CD, you know, um, downloading the song on iTunes. Um, you know, that mechanic, it is evolved oddly enough. Um, the copyright law, especially in the U.S., uh, didn't really evolve very well with it. Um, so they kind of just kept generalizing it and generalizing it. Um, but it is very much a part of any, um, you know, reproduction release of any type of music. And then when digital came along, um, and I was I was at Sony when um, streaming really started to become notable, and you know, no one ever really knew what, like, what's a stream worth? And I just remember being like early in my career, being very a part of that conversation, being like, how does nobody know what a stream is worth? Like what, what's, what makes up a stream? What does this? And, you know, is it performance? Is it mechanical? And, um, you know, I was probably only a couple of years in to my career at that point. So I was extremely confused because so was everyone else. Um, right. You know, so mechanical has fallen into the digital age as well. Um, and, and taken on, um, you know, kind of a, a thing of its own. So now, as Mandy was alluding to, now even a stream is made up of two parts um, in, in that it is generates a performance revenue and a mechanical revenue. And they're not always coming from the same source, even within your own country. Um, you know, so the means of, of collecting those can also be uh, disseminated and needing to, to bring back together. Um, you know, so you, you talk about um, mechanical, which was designed for a very specific purpose, um, but because of copyright law and generalization over time, you know, it's become a core component of, of all publishing royalty collection um, and, and basically at any medium um, of release um, outside of, um, you know, sync, sync stuff and, and print things. But, um, you know, if, if you're releasing music, uh, you're entitled to mechanical royalties, basically like flat out. And uh, depending, knowing where to get that is, is important. Um, and, and how it's generated is important. So it uh, can be a bit dependent on, on who you're working with, you know, um, and, and where you're positioned in the world, but uh, and, and what that rate might be and, and how much is owed to you. Uh, there's certain complexities around mechanical rights that change between the US and Europe and, and these things. And uh, can, that can get a bit heavy, so maybe not go into that. But if anybody wants to go into it, it it's called the, this concept of BIEM, uh, B-I-E-M, um, where uh, and um, you know 
who owns the mechanical, you know, does a, does the publisher have entitled to your mechanicals? Is um, the writer only entitled to their mechanicals? It can get very complex, but um, it's important to note that if you're, if you don't see mechanical royalties on your statements, um, something's missing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so for, for those of our, our listeners who really want to get deeper and deeper and deeper, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole nother universe for you. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of that and just kind of, you know, seeing on your statement like, hey, something should be here, but it's not. What are some of the mistakes that you see music creators make frequently as it relates to mechanical royalties? And what would you tell them? Hey, and you, we've alluded to, we've covered some of this already, but like, you know, how do you protect yourself? How do you, how do you get the most out of mechanical licenses and do, uh, and have that be a really successful part of the work that you're doing instead of this thing that, that as Mandy was talking about earlier, keeps you up at night? Well, the thing is that a lot of people leave the mechanicals on the table because they think or assume that they have access to their publishing royalties when in fact they don't. And that could be that they think, well, I joined BMI or ASCAP, so I'm covered. And and as we said, they are performing rights organizations, so they they don't attribute to the mechanical royalties that will be collected. And the other thing that you need to keep in mind is that there is a, an expiry date uh, as to how far one can back claim um, uncollected royalties. And for um, it varies the amount of time depending on the type of royalty source it is and the territory. But um, I think this will make people's ears prick up that in streaming and on the main uh, DSPs like Spotify, for example, that expiry date is only two to three years. So when people register their songs with us, if they've only been with um, a a PRO historically, um, normally in their first distribution through us from Spotify, they will see maybe a couple of years um, back claimed royalties from those DSPs in their first distribution from Song Trust. And I know you said you'll talk about YouTube too. I think that YouTube is also, it's possible to, to uh, back claim. And on, and on the um, collection societies, it will vary. Mechanicals can be collected, um, but, but there is the expiry date. And also with the changes, of course, label record labels, are, the traditional tra- record label will be shifting a bit. Uh, there's a change. What, what was a label 10 years ago may not be a label anymore. So the possibility to even collect mechanicals, which would in, historically have been due to, the, you know, to someone but weren't claimed, is not, no longer possible for um, internationally the uh, the International Collection Society to issue a mechanical license to a label that doesn't exist anymore. So this is, you know, the, the best message I can give, and I'm sure Carl will, will give more um, specific examples, is the best thing that, that the listeners can do here is just to make sure that they're affiliated at least to a performing rights organization. And if that's the minimum they're doing to make sure they have access to the mechanical rights income source somehow through an administrator or through um, joining a, a mechanical society at the very least, and to make sure that their songs are registered as soon as possible in real time, but correctly, accurately, because it's tremendously difficult to alter an existing copyright once it's registered. You'd think that it's just an amendment, but you know, once you register songs, they have this life <laughs> in all the different countries, and and the speed and efficiency that 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 copyright. Uh, chain or the, the details can be amended will very much vary uh, depending to depending on the territory. So 
I can almost guarantee that it will never be possible if you've registered a song written like from, by me and Kyle as 50-50 and then we decide that I want 75 and he gets 25. Even if we re-register, I would say three quarters of the world will get it right, but there'll be this parallel universe of the 50-50 split <laughs> of that song that will just go on ad infinitum and no matter how many calls one makes, it will always be paid out wrong. So, you know, I think that to collect your mechanicals, you have to have a means to collect your mechanicals. And, and that goes by, you have to follow the systems to a certain extent. You have to have your songs registered and you have to have access to, to the pay sources. But Carl, do you have anything more specific to add to that? Um, I would just say, you know, and then I think that I understand that this can be difficult sometimes because this isn't what a lot of creators envisioned when they wanted to get into music. They wanted to be, you know, they want to work <laughs> on the creative aspect and I get it. Um, but I would say, you know, it's, be kind of just aware, right? Be, where are you releasing your music? Who's releasing your music? Do you know, do you have a label? Is someone redistributing it outside of the US? You know, it, it's okay to ask those questions. And sometimes it can feel like it's getting a bit prickly, but um, you know, it's okay to, to, to ask those questions and then understand kind of where your music is, is, is going. Um, and once you know that, um, you know, you can be kind of helpful in your own regard where a license is in place, you know, is the label paying you directly? Are they paying your admin? Um, you know, there's a lot of questions that can stem from that. So it's, you know, just kind of having a, even a brief understanding of, of what is, what the plan is, um, especially if you're not self-releasing, um, is a good start. Um, you know, and then following, as Mandy said, you know, just, um, are you represented, um, and if you're doing it yourself, are you registered with all the societies and performance and mechanical and, you know, doing the best you can to, to have a footprint? Mm -hmm. Well, I can hear all of our listeners, their brains sizzling uh, and possibly needing to go back and listen to so, so much of what uh, this amazing knowledge that you've been dropping on us today, uh, just to let it all sink in. It's such a rich Rich conversation. Thank you so much to Kyle Feedy and Mandy Aubrey for joining us on the Music Answers podcast. Um, thanks for for all you're doing for music creators, and they're they're more grateful to you than perhaps they even realize. <laughs> thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. It's great. The Music Answers podcast is produced by Matt Rose and engineered by Josh Trimble. The music on today's episode was picked up by yours truly, Derek Fawcett. Music Answers is a music creator advocacy group of more than 4,000 signatories that seeks to protect, improve, and educate about the rights of songwriters, composers, performers, and producers. Visit musicanswers.org for important music creator information and to learn how you can support our efforts. Got questions you want answered on our podcast? Send them to us at musicanswers.org, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. I'm your host, Derek Fawcett, and this was the Music Answers Podcast. <laughs>